Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. By the end of this episode of Art of the Hustle, nearly 10,000 new malware variants will have launched. Now, AI can help protect your data from threats wherever it lives with IBM Security. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash smart. You are listening to The Art of the Hustle, the podcast that breaks down how the world's most fascinating and successful people have hustled their way to the top. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit and director of Summit Action Fund and owner of Powder Mountain. And today we have a very special guest for you on the show, one of the most important venture capitalists in the game right now, Arlen Hamilton. Arlen is the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital, a seed capital firm she started from scratch in 2015 with a serious mission. Backstage and Arlen have invested now millions of dollars in over 80 startups, all led by people of color, women, and LGBTQ-led organizations. Entrepreneurs who are often overlooked and underestimated, as Arlen was. She was underestimated too, and we're really excited to hear from her and learn from her. Welcome to the show, Arlen Hamilton. Thank you for having me. Of course. And, you know, now this month you're on the cover of Fast Company, you're keynoting, you know, my conference and Vanity Fair Summit. And there's a tremendous amount of, you know, love and attention and interest in in what you're doing and building. And not that there's even remotely enough, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I wanted to start from where you started. And there's some amazing stories about the the origin of your hustle. So uh, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I was born in Jackson, Mississippi, where my mom was born, and we quickly moved to Dallas. And you know, I also am from Dallas. You're from Dallas. We're both. Wow. We're both. I went to Hillcrest High School. Oh my goodness! I went to Lake Highlands. No way! We're like neighbors. Yeah. This is incredible. Oh yeah, we're definitely neighbors. And um, you know, I read that your entrepreneurial spirit began at the very beginning and you had some little in-school entrepreneurial endeavors that you kicked off at a very young age. Yes. (laughs) I was very uh, precocious, I guess is the word. I discovered bulk candy. So we went to Sam's Club or Costco, depending on where you're from. And I discovered that you could buy candy in bulk. 
And I said, wow, this candy costs X amount at 7-Eleven, and I can get 100 of them here for this amount. I could sell this at school, and I could make a profit, and I could be the candy lady. <laughs> so I did that. How old were you? Uh, what is it, eighth, eight, nine, something like that in third grade? Yeah. And, how, and how'd you do? How did it go? I, w- I made like 10 bucks like total in a week, and I did that for a while. I remember feeling pretty... I felt like I was walking on air because I was able to undercut the price of 7-Eleven while making a profit. And it was just so fascinating to me. And it was, you know, it was like people would come over to my desk or I'd kind of say, hey, uh, <laughs> hey, little kid, you want, uh, you want some candy? And it was actual candy. So, yeah, it was <laughs> a lot of fun. And <laughs> it was like, I also that same year... I did something that I kind of feel like is the equivalent of, of a, like a stock market type thing that I was trying to figure out in my head without knowing what stocks were. I love scratch and sniff stickers and I wanted more of them and you got them one at a time and that wasn't enough for me. So I came up with this plan where I would tell all of the students in my class, 20 kids, everyone give me one sticker and I'll hold the sticker for the whole year in my collection. I'll have this collection and you can come look at it and, you know, it's not going anywhere. Um, and then at the end of the year, school year, I will do a, a raffle, put everybody's name in who put one in and one person will get the collection to take home for the summer. And so many people did it because they were able to keep most of their stickers, give one away and then I walked around with the largest collection. And I just, I don't know what I thought that was, but it just... It kind of fascinates me now as an adult to think that I was even thinking that way back then. So you built an endowed museum collection of scratch and sniff stickers (laughs) with some vegetation rights. That's great. (laughs) Um, Incredible. And now that you, you know, you're such an entrepreneur based on your, you know, life and track record and and you've spent, you know, I read 3000 companies now you've, you've gone through to make 80 plus investments and you're doing diligence and underwriting and taking the 10,000 meetings. Do you think that this entrepreneurial spirit is something that you're born with? Do you think it's something that is innate in people? Is it something that you look for? I honestly don't know, but I guess I have to lean towards being born with it. And then it's what you make of it because I think it can be taught, but I don't know many people who were thinking about playing Monopoly at five years old, which I did. I don't know many people Mm. who were thinking about what kind of business can I start in the third grade? And I think there's this, there's a certain group of people who think like that. And when I meet other entrepreneurs, they have similar stories. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I definitely think there's something there. Just like maybe you have something in you that, you know, you can play the piano, you have your, your, you can learn a language faster than someone else. And it's, it's about whether you go for it or not. Where your passions lie, where you have enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. Where you, where you get the first indications that you may have talent somewhere where it may stir your soul because it certainly stirred mine. And, you know, I love the saying, um, those that make wine will tell you that the sweetest grapes don't come from the ones that get the most water. It's actually when you restrict the flow of water, the grape has to create glucose to convert the sun's energy. Oh. And uh, that's why they get sweeter. So in your case, I know that you came up at a time in, in a place where your family definitely had some struggles, correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I try not to make mine a rags to riches because, first of all, I'm not rich. But I try not to make it that much of a story. But because it was, it was just so, it was just so normal to me, and it, I didn't like it. I knew I didn't, I didn't want it to be that way always. But we definitely, we moved a lot because we couldn't pay rent, 
And we, I watched my mom work two jobs a lot of times, and she worked the whole time I was being raised, and she took care of two kids, and it was just something where I felt like she could never get her head above water, and I, and I felt mm-hmm. for her because I knew she was trying. I knew how hard she was trying. So I looked at it as, you know, this is a situation that I know that I don't want to be in for the rest of my life. And I want to also expose my mom to other things. I want her to see what life is like when she doesn't have to struggle like this. And that was just the motivator for me and still is. And and I didn't want to paint you as the victim. I just love that, you know, everything we're not makes us everything we are, right? And I'm I'm curious, did you do you remember a moment where you started realizing the strengths or do you feel like that you got, you know, gifts from these experiences early on that, you know, made it so you're understanding both the high low, seeing the hundred million dollar house and also knowing, you know, what it feels like to, you know, sleep in an airport or like have a hard experience. I would just think as an investor, that's exactly what I would want. And my investors are people that can help me navigate what is a real problem versus a perceived problem. And also tell me if I'm being wasteful in a meaningful way. That's very true, and I I definitely see it that way. There's a fine line between that that conclusion that I think is very evolved and smart and right, (laughs) and the way other people can take it sometimes to almost say like, I've heard people say this to me, you know, almost say like, hey, you're kind of lucky that you went through that because you have this other view now. And I never want to let people who are privileged think that, Someone who has gone through that or gone through other things that I haven't even gone through is fortunate to have had that experience because that's just not accurate. So the way that you put it is absolutely right. And that that has helped me time and time again relate to our founders. And actually, we're we're past 100 now. It's really crazy and uh, gives me goosebumps. One of the things I had heard about Arlen was that she grew up a Jehovah's Witness. And one of the parts of the service that you provide as a member is you do go door to door and proselytize the religion. Um, And so, you know, having people tell you no over and over again was something that she just internalized. So when people in Silicon Valley said no to her, it wasn't really a big thing. She knew that a hundred doors later, there would be a yes waiting. I'd love it if you wouldn't mind walking me through, you know, how you got to be a VC, because I know it wasn't the typical Harvard Business School, Stanford tech scene, you know, my dad owns yeah. the dealership type of story. You were tour managing oh, yeah. artists, correct? Yeah, I, I was. Well, I was actually a production coordinator for for an, uh, an artist. I had worked my way to, into that position, and it wasn't, you know, I wasn't rolling in dough. I was, but I was very happy to have worked for years to get myself in the position where I could go on tour and get paid to tour and do what I loved. So I was in that position. I was, I've always been a very curious person. I've always been a sort of student of life and started seeing little things like Ellen. I found out Ellen had invested in a couple of startups and Ashton Kutcher would have these stickers on his laptop. He would talk about Silicon Valley. And I was just like, what is that? Where are these people going who, in my view, have a really cool life already? They have a high-flying, adrenaline-filled life, but for some reason, it's important to them to go and drop 50K on a three-person startup out of a garage in this Silicon Valley place. What is that? And so once that caught my attention, 
I started doing more research. I had actually applied to work at Airbnb. So I had interacted with the startup without really understanding that that was what, what it was. And once I understood what a startup was, who the startups were, and what it meant for the potential for anyone really who had the will to start something on their own, I thought, man, this is the future. This is it. This is going to unlock so much potential in people from all backgrounds. And so I said, okay, I want to start a company and I'm going to go on that route. And I started reaching out to people and interviewing people and just learning as much as I could, reading everything I could, watching every video I could get my hands on. And doing all of this very limited means mm-hmm. and mostly off the road, you know, when I had when I had the time. And then that's when I started seeing like how different the experience was for the people you just described. Like I went to school with the guys whose fathers owned the dealerships and they were, you know, they would come in at 16, they'd get their car and that's what kind of was replicated in Silicon Valley to me. It was just like, oh, so like certain people just kind of start on third base. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously everybody goes to their own thing, so it's not a blanket statement, but it was a fact, and it still is a fact, that more than 90% of all venture capital goes to white men, and most of those in that category are already affluent. Yeah. So that didn't make any sense to me. It, w- it didn't sit well with me, especially when I saw so much innovation, creativity, talent, intellect coming from all walks of life and all types of people. And... We would have doctors, you know, black doctors who were being overlooked and, oh, they must be the secretary or they must be this. They couldn't be the CEO or how all those things were in play. And I thought on one hand, as a gay black woman, that sucks a lot and it's not fair and it is insulting and frustrating. On the other hand, let's do something about it. And what an opportunity that is to at least try to tell the person, whoever's going to do this, that, hey, there should be a fund manager who only invests in anyone who's, who's everything else, right? So I never set out to be a venture capitalist. Yeah, I set out to try to get access to capital for women, people of color, and LGBT founders. It's incredible. And through all of my research, um, this is where I landed. One of the things that a lot of elite communities struggle with are, you know, diversification in a meaningful way. And when I look at, you know, the founders and the founding teams and the investor pools of the last, say, 50 companies that IPO'd in our generation, you don't see a lot of people of color, you don't see a lot of women, you don't see a lot of LGBTQ um, on those cap tables. And so I would think that there's a trickle down effect into the things that they think are important where that capital ultimately goes. A hundred percent. Yeah. So much happens. Um, when you have a successful company, like the people that are leading the company, the employees. So the first dozen, hundred employees that you have are going to shape your culture for the rest of the the company's life. So those are the ones who are going to benefit from an IPO or from a merger. People who are on your cap table, as you've mentioned. So listeners, I appreciate that some of you don't know what a cap table is. The cap table is the breakdown of equity in any company. Who owns what and at what valuation? 
people who are on your cap table, as you've mentioned, people who are on your board. These are people who can then go on to be angel investors or start their own funds or at least help shape ideas and, and decision, make decisions. And if it's just the same thing over and over again, it, it, you know, another way to think about it, if, if you don't want to make it a black-white thing because it happens a lot, right? Think about if it's just your buddies, it's just maybe, let's just say it's like 10 guys that are all white, but all the decisions get made by the one guy that lives in Boston, Mm-hmm. <laughs> like all the money goes to that one guy, all the decisions get to be made by that one guy. It just is odd. It's just weird. And it doesn't, it's not going to foster any sort of innovation in the long run. And it's just um, noticeable. So that's how I feel and a lot of people feel when they look at 90% of the growth and the seed funding is going to one group of people. That makes no sense. I read that it was something like three dozen black women have received over a million dollars in venture capital across the United States. Is that a real statistic? Yes. And that's, that's over 70 years. That is mind blowing. Yes, it is. And I think that if you don't, if you're not, if, I mean, I'm, you know, if you're blessed to be an American and you know, you have the advantages of coming from a family that can invest in education and you know, that could love you and be present. And, you know, for me, I'm a white guy. So I I've had the advantages of that without really realizing it for a long period of time. Not only do we have confirmation bias, like, Oh, well it worked for me once. So why wouldn't it work for me again? But I think that, um, you know, we're all working to meaningfully diversify our communities, you know, economically, gender, color, and not just, you know, diversity, but inclusion and equity, like who actually gets to make decisions in what the products consist of. It sounds like that's key to your thesis, no? Absolutely. It's everything. It's what's fair, you know, and again, you know, you hit on the inclusion part and we are talking about that a lot these days. I think a lot of times people their eyes glaze over and they start when they start hearing about diversity and inclusion because it's become this thing that is so like people are like oh I'm going to the dentist now that's I'm going to go get a checkup because we're going to talk about diversity or if, like I've been at places where they like I'm supposed to speak and they announce that I'm going to be talking about diversity and I'm like no don't do it because yeah. half the people get up and walk out because it's like oh I don't want to be preached to I don't want to be scolded and I also I get it I believe it I understand you you know what do we do next and so I, I'm on a bit of a mission to make it more fun and make it more relatable than just there's a group of people who are being left out and it's not fair, let us in. It's more like your quality of life can be lifted and and there's more fun to be had and there's more innovation to be had. And if you like competition, there's nothing like putting everybody on common footing to foster amazing competition. I love competition. I would want anyone who I'm battling against or running next to to be able to be on my level so that we can hash it out, you know, so we can see who who wins the race. And I think if we start looking at it more like that, then hopefully more people want to be part of it. And, and it's not charity. It's the more diverse the inputs, the more complex and impactful the outputs. And it's, it's you know, arbitrage in a sense. It's the combination yeah. of ideas or ways of seeing that unlocks these new fields or industries or opportunities. Back with Arlen in a minute. This is The Art of the Hustle. This message comes from Art of the Hustle sponsor, IBM. 
IBM is working with clients to put smart to work and bring progress to everyone. Together with IBM, experts are putting smart to work to help save species, increase crop yields, and make progress. Not just for a few of us, for all of us. Because while technology has never been smarter, smart only matters when you put it to work where it matters. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. Welcome back to The Art of the Hustle, the show where we investigate the secrets that make the world's most successful people tick. And we're in the studio with Arlen Hamilton. If I'm you know, a young founder right now and I'm thinking about how I build my team, do you have any advice for people that are in that part of the company development and building? Do you advise your startup founders in a way on how to do this? So our startup founders are all women, people of color, LGBT, so they're already starting on a, on a foot that's a little bit different. I always say, you know, just keep in mind that diversity means just that. It doesn't mean five black women. That's not diverse, <laughs> you know. So really look around the room at the very earliest stages and make a conscious decision that you don't want to be looking at your a carbon copy of yourself for years to come. You want to have different people in the room so that you can be seeing things. I know that our team, we have about 30 people on our team now from all over the country, and it's just a super, super diverse group of people, not only race and, and orientation, but like half of them are more educated than I ever have been. We have Harvard and Columbia and all sorts of graduates in our team. We also have people on the same team who came from retail or came from washing windows or or everything in between, you know? So mm. that helps me keep an eye on the best deals. I'm not going to see everything. I'm not going to relate to everything or understand the potential of everything, but I have ears on the ground. I have people who have a finger on the pulse of what's going on so that I don't miss anything. So I, I don't want to miss out on that next great company that we could have invested in, but we didn't because I had a blinder to it. So mostly what I do is try to practice what I preach and I also try to lead by example. So if you if you look at our website, uh, backstagecapital.com slash crew, you'll see our team. You'll see that it's it's amazing. It's also been the most fulfilling experience of my adult life has been working with this team because of their diversity, because every day I'm learning something different. I'm exposed to something I didn't understand or know before. I am challenged on my own bias. I am, I am confronted with my own limitations. And for anyone who is curious like I am and competitive like I am, those things are a gift every single day. I'm curious, did you have mentors or heroes or a first follower or, you know, specific books or something like what were the, what were these key things that helped you along your way when you were starting before that first 25 K check hit the bank? Like what were some of those key people or moments that, that you felt inspired you along the way? Well, I'll tell you what, um, when it comes to the journey itself and building the fund, I spent a lot of time alone and it was a pretty lonely experience. But the way I describe that those, you know, the last six years or so, half of them with a fund, half chasing a fund. I describe it as you're in a marathon 
when you're in a marathon, you're, it's just you. You're running, you're running, your body's giving out, you have to push yourself. But every once in a while, a hand will stick out and hand you a cup of water and you can go that extra mile, literally. And that's what the experience was like for me because I don't think anybody is self-made. And there were many, many people along the way who did jump in to just bolster what I was doing. And uh, many of them were, were women who just saw me there and, and offered like, hey, you, you're, you're going to make it, keep going. And then there were people like um, Chris Saka and Sam Altman mm-hmm. and Brad Feld, mm-hmm. who... Um, great investors, all of them. Yeah, who are great investors. And, and Chris and Brad now are in, literal investors in our fund. But they would kind of lend a helping hand and, and or at least a word of encouragement, you know, that kind of kept me going. But before that, I think what really set me up for this were those experiences earlier in life as a teenager and as a young woman where I saw people that gave me the drive to do something bigger than what I had imagined before. So those people are people mostly I have never met. So those people are Richard Branson. He has been one of my heroes since I was 15. Janet Jackson. I met her once when I was a teenager, but Janet Jackson was the first example outside of my own mother of a strong black woman who was in charge, who commanded respect and and was um, unapologetically herself in every turn and has incredible business prowess that's often overlooked. And people like Ellen, who for 20 years has been an inspiration to me as as someone who came out so bravely and had to go through the most public ridicule and and being ostracized and all sorts of things, but still did it and still came out of it and came out of it glowing and now has inspired me to become an investor. So it's these, these people that I actually just have been looking at from afar who you know, Oprah, you can't leave Oprah out, who have just been this example of if I could have, you know, a board for my life, (laughs) like these would be the board members of my life. And um, they've all in their own way given me some sort of strength and made me dream bigger. And that's the most important part, that they have made me imagine more for myself. So when people tell me today and they come up to me and say that I help them imagine more for themselves, it is the greatest compliment I can receive. And speaking of imagining more for yourself, you know, I've read that you are laying the groundwork now for larger funds. I mean, it started with a 25k check. What do you guys what do you guys have under management now? So what we're doing now, we we've invested in 100 companies. We invested 25k to 100k in each of those companies and that was very, very hard one to get to that point. And so earlier this year, we announced that we launched and are raising a fund that will invest a million dollars at a time in black women-led companies. And we will make the first two investments and announcements from that fund by the end of this year. And then we'll invest in about five companies per year out of that fund. And we also announced this year that we launched an accelerator a startup accelerator in four cities. So Los Angeles, Detroit, Philadelphia, and London now all have backstage accelerator teams, and we will have our first cohort in March 2019. Incredible. And uh, 
on the investment side, you know, we the public markets are legally completely efficient. Any, you know, insider information is exactly that. And then, you know, startups, it's also incredibly efficient that, you know, nine out of 10 fail. And when you look at models like Y Combinator, guys like Sam Altman, who you mentioned, the level of diligence that these companies are going through is pretty tremendous. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, so we find it to be incredibly competitive. And I heard a story specifically, you mentioned Sam, that when he met Peter Thiel for the first time, they played chess against each other in their heads at a diner. And I can't do that. I don't know if you can, but, um, you know, one of the things that's, 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 I, I, and I've, I've slowed down on the startup investing specifically because I, I do recognize, um, how difficult it is both to pick winners and to help those teams succeed. Um, what do you think are your, now that we're talking about the present moment, the competitive advantages, the first principles of backstage that are really like, how do you compete with these, these amazingly efficient, hyper brilliant entrepreneurs? Uh, by having access to amazingly efficient, hyper-intellectual entrepreneurs who are, are black and brown and female. <laughs> and who totally. are and they miss that. Overlooked. They all miss all of that. They miss that. Yeah, so the, you know, right. the, smartest, the smartest guys in the room are only as smart as their company, you know, as, as who they choose to be around. And honestly, to be quite frank with you, it does not impress me that someone is, you know, hyper intelligent if they have no EQ, mm. and I think that that is is certainly my competitive edge. I've been in these rooms where I can have a conversation, I can go toe to toe, and I may not know, you know, everything that they do about financial models and this and that because I actually choose not to learn it. I spend most of my time understanding people are trying to, and understanding that I'll never fully understand people. And so I think that as simple as that may seem, it is missing. It is a lost art in this world. So if you take someone like Sam, again, who has, has been helpful and is an is a acquaintance of mine, if you, put the, if you put them in that room playing chess with each other, that's fantastic and what opening scenes of uh, Sorkin movies are made of. But... Who are they impacting and are they starting a movement or are they representing kind of a more of a narrow group of people? And I think Y Combinator, I'm very impressed and and, uh, inspired by Y Combinator, what they've done over the past few years. And Sam has been, he, he was one of the very first people to tell me that the world needed what I was doing or what I was attempting. So I, I will always remember that. I'll never, ever be able to beat him at chess or at most academic confrontations, but I think I could wipe the floor with him when it came to like human interaction and, and like seeking things out and going beyond uh, what I think I already know. A lot of the most prevalent technology applications, we're not just talking about products for brown or gay people. We're talking about the things like the Ubers or the Googles or the Facebooks of the world, the things that, you know, the top 10 apps. Oftentimes I find that those are developed by and built by teams who are on the spectrum a little bit. So their definition of a successful user experience is frictionless where they don't ever have to interact with somebody. Whereas humans need human interaction. Yes. Um, is that something that you guys consider is more human technology? Is it, I guess as an expansion to that, like just would love to know about what you're investing in, what you're thinking about right now. Yeah. So I, I, I'll, I'll step back a second and also mention to you that I, I hope that it didn't come across where I was saying something about um, 
the spectrum because I actually feel like I am on it. Uh, and there's many, many people that who are that I interact with who are black and brown. But there's something about just walking around in this body, a black gay woman who has you know, lived 38 years, there's something about that that just gives you a different perspective. The first thing that came to mind when you asked the question about working on things that are meant for everyone and not necessarily just if you're a black person working on something for the black market, et cetera, is there's a woman named Jessica Matthews who runs Uncharted Power in Harlem. And Jessica is Nigerian-born. She has raised, I think she raised $6 million Series A, and so that turned her into the black woman who'd raised the most in a Series A in venture at the time. And but on top of that, she's been on the cover of Forbes Africa twice. But, you know, if you ask around Silicon Valley, they don't know her name. But she is inventing things. She's a scientist and she's a, a, a CEO. She's a wonderful unicorn herself. She's building things for renewable energy from soccer balls that there's a picture of Obama playing with the soccer ball she invented that as you play with it, it creates energy to luggage that as you pull it through the airport, it's charging your phone through kinetic energy and now speed bumps and beyond and things that we can't even talk about here because what she wants to do is help build the smart city of the future. The smart city of the future is for everyone. And I'm so proud of her and I'm so excited to see what she does next. But that's one example of someone, what if we didn't nurture her mind? What if we put walls around her, limitations on her because of the color of her skin? These things that she has created would not be here necessarily or this soon if they were. Those are the types of things that motivate me in a way that uh, I can't truly describe because... What I'm, people are saying, oh, you know, what if the next Mark Zuckerberg is here or there? I say, what if the next Mark Zuckerberg is a little black girl in Jackson, Mississippi? Let's be really diligent here and let's look for her and let's find her. And we actually had Jessica speak and play with those soccer balls at our uh, Summit at Sea event back in 2011, seven years ago. Yeah. And yeah, uh, she she's, was, she's, she's amazing. She was exceptional then and only more amazing now. And part of it is that, you know, you're talking about three or four iterations of a product, right? And oh, oftentimes yeah. I think that's also something is afforded to a specific group of founders where you can fail and that's a badge of honor. Yes. Whereas like that follow on investment, I'll just share my first investor in Powder Mountain. Mountain, our, uh, our mountain development project out in Utah, yeah. before we even had a bank account, he gave us the money and he said, I'll tell you what my first investor told us. If you lose my money, you'll make me double on the next one. Wow. And wow. I don't know. Amazing. Right? Never and heard that. Never heard those words in my life, man. <laughs> but would you do that for Jessica? I assume so, right? Oh, yeah. I would do that for Jessica, and I have done that for people. I've done that in these three, three years. It goes back to two things. It's one is that talking about having my different perspective and my look at that, my view of money. Um, it's about the human first because of what money means to me. But also, I've said this before, black women especially are not afforded second chances. We're not a, we, we don't have the room to fail. No one will give us that second chance. I was told that if I did not 10x my fund, I would be considered a failure because I'm black and a woman. I was told this by a white male investor, and he was ser very serious. 
And I said, well, if I 3X my fund, that's better than 85% of all venture capital today. And he said, it won't be enough. You have to 10X it. You have to do better than anybody who's ever met you in order to be considered on the same field as us. And he was representing a lot of people's inner thoughts that they're, not, that they're afraid to say. So I, I do this with everyone that I'm associated with, and I would, do it with, I would do it with white male founders if I were investing in them. And that is, I'm here for the duration. I'm here to watch your trajectory, and that's not going to all be a hockey stick. And I think Elon Musk is a wonderful example because... He's had many, many things go wrong, and he's had many, many things go really, really well and really right. But I would think he would agree, too, that he had to have some of the stuff go wrong. Like, he crashed a rocket, you know, or a satellite or something, crashed something that cost hundreds of millions. He, He had to have that moment for the rocket to land and land and land. He stuck the landing like the last three times. This isn't, you know, small fry stuff we're talking about. This is rocket ships. I mean, it's truly rocket science on top of everything else. And I think that I just use him as an example because a lot of people outside of tech know him too. I would love, love, love to see Jessica get the same treatment where she can put on her Iron Woman suit and suit up for 20 years and figure it out because she'll get us there. Now, she and other people are doing things on, on such low resources, even with that big raise, that that's another thing to applaud because these resources with people in our portfolio that they're working with, and then they come up with these things and they, they get these milestones and I'm just blown away. But, you know, one day when I have a lot of my own angel money, I'm going to start a fund for myself that's just the second chance fund. And it's just going to be for people to go out there and get to fail and fall and get back up. Well, it's really hard to gain wisdom from hearing other people's experiences. It's very easy when you get your teeth knocked out and then don't go down that rabbit hole again or don't make that mistake again. I want to know how you felt when you heard that, though. What did that instill in you? What kind of, did that give you a confidence or? Yeah, we were so, we had a lot of confirmation bias. You know, we were very successful at the things we had done at a very young age. And while that was mostly because we believed in servant leadership and we listened very intently to a very smart and experienced community of people and then did what they told us to, like that's Mm -hmm. our primary sixth, I think that's a lot of what had to do with it. Um, It definitely made us think a lot more expansively. It, it let us take a breath. You know, I think that when we started the mountain project specifically, our investors across the board, not just the first one, they saw us and said, okay, these guys do not have the capacity to do what they're talking about today, but they will build Mm -hmm. into it and be able to produce it tomorrow. Do you think about that? I'm just curious, like when you find a new, you know, whether it's somebody new or somebody you've invested in before, is this something that you try to bring to these relationships? How do you balance the like, you know, um, support and, and cheerleading with the like critical and the meaningfully, you know, either negative or, or you know, the type of feedback that's hard to give, or th- but they need to hear? Oh, I, I balance that very well. I, I believe in it. None of us have time for uh, blowing smoke. You know, it, n- neither side has that time. So I am very straightforward with our founders. I, I respect them enough to know that they can take it and that they deserve it. And understanding that it always comes down to the human, to the person, to 
these relationships that I hope to have for decades and not just flash in the pan. So I'm not going to, you know, I've had people time and time again, with a hundred companies, you have a lot of founders and a lot of people who have access. And I've had people tell me time and time again, or say later that they, or read about it or something that, that they tell me things that they're afraid to tell their other investors because they know that I'm going to give them a nurturing place and a safe space to say it and to kind of be caught. But I'm also going to let them know what my opinion of it is. So they don't have to guess how I'm feeling. And that's how I approach everyone. I try to tell everyone how I feel so that they don't have to guess if I'm being sincere about something. Or they don't have to guess if I really don't like something, but I'm saying I like it. And so it's it's really important to me that they get both. And I think also not only the portfolio companies, but companies who are pitching. I think sometimes companies think that they're going to get like a pass with me. Like they can just kind of show up half ready. And I'm ready for them. I expect the most from them. I expect them to be at their best because I know that they can be. So you can think of it as like kind of a mixture between some sort of like <laughs> high school coach that, you know, is there for the duration. And uh, I've been called people's gay auntie before, so I'll take it. Uh, but I'm, I'm there for reassurance and I'm there to champion you. But I'm also there to give you the real deal because none of this is easy. And it would be doing them a disservice to to present it as anything but. I'll give an example. Um, Kehlani, the singer, she's a great, great friend now. And um, she came in with her team at Flora, I think October 2017. She approached me, which I thought was really great because she was very serious about her company. And she asked us to take a look at the deck and look at it. And I set up a meeting and I took them through the paces. I really did. I really asked them tough questions and I made sure and I challenged things. And later, you know, they did say that they appreciated that because to me, like, if you can't get through me, you're not going to get through people who really don't have much invested in you as a human. So you have to be ready. I want to know your numbers. I want to know that you know what you're doing or that you know that you don't know you're, what you're doing so that we can get there. And that established a very trusting and respectful relationship. So your competitive advantages are telling people how you feel, being their friend, supporting them in a meaningful way, giving them legitimate critique and feedback. It's, uh, it's definitely incredibly uh, reassuring and refreshing to hear you know, you talk this way about, you know, how you back and build enterprise. It's an old Lombardi quote. It's not about the X's and O's. It's about the Mo's and the Joe's. Like you can figure it out <laughs> if you have great people, if you have great support. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, where do you go from here? So like this is this, this, it's been a huge year for you. Um, what are you focusing in on coming into 19? We are heads down right now um, going through 1800 accelerator applications wow. that we received in less than six weeks, I think. Our internal goal, I set a goal of 800 applications. In the past, we've invested in about 3% of what we've seen, and we have approximately 24 spots in this new class. So I said, if we get 800 applications, we knocked it out the park this first cohort, you know, starting from scratch. We got 1,800. 
So now we have uh, at least a dozen people going through applications right now. And they, let me tell you, they are stunning, these applications. They are really, really impressive. And so we, we hope to make those first announcements of those, that cohort at the top of the year. And we will kick off the accelerator in four different cities in spring of 2019. So that's really our main, main focus going in. I'll be excited to share who these first two million dollar investments are. What we're trying to do is keep this going so that we can have representation for years to come and hopefully keep this movement going, which is starting to be an actual movement. So the amplification part of it, I think I think that fast company cover kicks things off in a major way there where you'll you'll see more of me doing public speaking, which I have just in the last year and a half conquered my my stage fright or almost conquered it. You'll see a lot more of that, but I think you'll also see things like podcasts and maybe a book on its way in 2020 and maybe other things popping up and maybe even something on television one day. Amazing. I think that's where you know we, we go towards that direction. I was going to ask who's playing you in the movie. <laughs> Oh man, I don't man, I would I don't know if I ever ever <laughs> want to see a movie of my life, but I've always said Queen Latifah even though she's older than me because she's Queen okay. Latifah. Okay. Okay. You know, start with a small <laughs> unknown artist and soon work yeah, your way from there. Yeah, I want to get just it. a little uh, bit of that. Actually, like <laughs> Lena Waithe would be awesome, right? Lena Waithe would make yeah, a lot of sense. Both of them. Um and and I couldn't agree with you more. It is a movement and the work that you're doing is so important and it does democratize the American dream. It democratizes entrepreneurship, which is supposed to be meritocracy, but we know it's not. And the stuff that you were talking about and working on and doing, we just need more of it. So um, you certainly have my support. And for anyone else that wants to, you know, learn more about your work or perhaps apply for, you know, one of the incubators, where, where would they go to get that information? Yeah, everything is, is based at backstagecapital.com. We have a lot going on there. You can also, you know, you can click on the accelerator. So go to backstagecapital.com slash accelerator. You can go to the site and check out all of our content that we have. We have all sorts of written content, podcasts, video, all sorts of uh, FAQs that people have, and we address them there. I also spend a lot of time reaching out and talking to people online. So if you wanted to follow me at Arlen was here, A-R-L-A-N on Instagram and Twitter, I spend a, a lot of time just interacting with people because people have questions and I love to answer them. And I respect the the come up and the hustle and people are doing things and I love hearing about those things. So just let me know what you're up to and I'd love to hear about it. And then I think uh, applications are closed right now, but they'll be open again soon and you want to kind of keep up with that because the odds are pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, as long as you come with your A game and you're ready, then um, you have a fighting chance. Well, thank you, Arlen. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the podcast and uh, really rooting for you and, and just excited about everything you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. What an inspiring conversation. That was Arlen Hamilton. 
I love how Arlen demands we imagine more of ourselves, and that's something that we always talk about at Summit, the multidisciplinary ideas festival and community built by my friends and I over the last 10 years. Our first principle is make no small plans, you know, be driven by your mission. And Arlen is relentless in her mission. And in her own words, she respects the come up, she respects the hustle. And one of my favorite things from this conversation with Arlen is her investment thesis that EQ can trump IQ. Your emotional intelligence can actually compete and beat your intellect. You know, if you have empathy and if you hustle, anything is possible. You can outplay the smartest guy in the room. This has been The Art of the Hustle, a collaboration between WeWork and iHeartMedia. If you like the show or have thoughts on who we should interview next, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. And if you really like the show, do us a favor and leave us a review here or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.